12, 2 Chronicles chapter 12. And uh, the message tonight is one sin leads to another. One sin leads to another. In Rehoboam's life, remember Rehoboam is the son of Solomon. He took the throne after Solomon died. In Rehoboam's life, one sin led to another. And that's what will happen if you don't deal with sin. No matter how small it is. Remember, Paul compared it to leaven and little leaven. He says, spoil the whole lump. So again, sin has to be dealt with. And here we see that Rehoboam leads his people into falling away from the Lord. Now, God did not approve of the things that Rehoboam did. And sometimes when people read the things that that men in the Bible uh appeared to get away with they say i can't believe that god let them get away with what they did well believe me they didn't get away with anything and neither will we and that's often said about abraham you know when he took when he took hagar and she gave birth to a son ishmael abraham didn't get away with it (laughs) you know if he was around he'd still be paying for it we're we're paying for it now Uh, because again his son ishmael is the father of of the Ishmaelites or the Arabs today. And this is the reason for the ongoing conflict today between the Jews and the Arabs in the Middle East. Did God approve of Abraham taking Hagar? No way, because that wasn't God's plan. He decided to step in and thought he would help God and, and you know, do what needed to be done. God just records it for us as history. And, and, and then he lets you see the results, and hopefully we learn the lessons from these things. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, for 10 verse 11, he said, These things happened to them as examples for us. They were written down, uh, they, they were written down to warn us who live at the end of the age. So what Abraham did has never been a blessing. In fact, it's been a thorn in the flesh, like I said, of the Middle East through the centuries to this very moment. Now here, in our chapter tonight, God records the apostasy of Jeroboam. He also records the forsaking of the law by Rehoboam and Israel. And God condemns these things, but again, he records them as history. So here, in our text, Israel is referred to, or Israel refers to Judah, the southern kingdom. Now during Rehoboam's first three years as king, he made an attempt, or he tried to, to obey God. <clears throat> and you know, when, when people say, well, I tried, you know, it, it's, it's, it's just their way of saying, well, you know, I, I didn't want to, you know, I, I didn't really want to live the life of God. Uh, I love what Alan Redpath said about trying. He said, the struggle in the Christian life isn't won by trying or crying, but by dying. You see, and that's the key. We don't want to die. We don't want to die to ourselves. To our flesh. And he says, your trying is seen as rebellion by Jesus. But then when Rehoboam got to the peak of his popularity, he abandoned God. And you can guess as well as see that that didn't turn out very well. It never does. You can't abandon God and expect things to go well for you. It resulted in Israel's destruction between because God allowed Egypt to conquer Judah But you would say, how could this happen? You see, it's often harder for a Christian to live for God when things are going well than it is in bad times. Because you see, easy times can make us complacent. Hey, no worries. I got this. 
you know, uh, where tough times, they drive us toward God. Be forewarned. When everything seems to be going right, you better put your guard up. You better guard your faith very closely. Let's begin now in chapter 12 with verses 1 through 12. Now it came to pass when Rehoboam had established the kingdom and had strengthened himself that he forsook the law of the Lord and all Israel, notice, along with him. And it happened in the fifth year of King Rehoboam that Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem because they had transgressed against the Lord with 1,200 chariots, 60,000 horsemen and people without number who came with him out of Egypt. The Lubum, the Sukkum, and the Ethiopians. And he took the fortified cities of Judah and he came to Jerusalem. Then Shemaiah the prophet came to Rehoboam and the leaders of Judah who were gathered together in Jerusalem because of Shishak. And he said to them, thus says the Lord, you have forsaken me. Therefore, I also have left you in the hand of Shishak. So the leaders of Israel and the king humbled themselves and they said, the Lord is righteous. Now, when the Lord saw that they humbled themselves, the word of the Lord came to Shemaiah, saying, They have humbled themselves. Therefore, I will not destroy them, but I will grant them some deliverance. My wrath shall not be poured out on Jerusalem by the hand of Shishak. Nevertheless, they will be his servants, that they may distinguish my service from the service of the kingdoms of the nations. So Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem and took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house, he took everything. He also carried away the gold shields which Solomon had made. Then King Rehoboam made bronze shields in their place and committed them to the hands of the captains of the guard who guarded the doorway of the king's house. And whenever the king entered the house of the Lord, the guard would go and bring them out. Then they would take them back into the guard room. When he humbled himself, the wrath of the Lord turned from him so as not to destroy him completely, and things also went well in Judah. Israel was really disgraced and weakened when they split, and they became two kingdoms. Yet the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom, having both the temple and the royal city Jerusalem, and both the house of David and the house of Aaron, they might have done really well if they had continued in their responsibility. But here, everything is out of, out of order. Everything is, 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 in, is in shambles. For example, Rehoboam and his people left following God. Verse 1 says, he forsook the law of the Lord, which in reality, he really forsook God. And he says, all Israel along with him. His poor leadership, the people followed him right down the tubes. Now, he had his happy days for three years. When he walked with, uh, with God in the way of David and Solomon, it tells us back in chapter 11. But it ended, and he got more and more careless about worshiping God. Now, we're not told in what ways he was careless, but he fell away, and all Judah fell with him. Here they were called Israel because they walked in the evil ways into which Jeroboam had drawn the, the northern kingdom of Israel. So Rehoboam fell away when verse 1 says he established the kingdom and strengthened himself. As long as he thought his throne was, uh, was in danger, he did whatever he was supposed to, making God his friend. But when he felt his throne was standing strong and everything was okay and solid his, and his kingdom was safe, he thought, hmm, I, don't really, I don't need religion anymore 
or as much. You know, I'm safe enough without it. Second Chronicles 26, 19 says this, is this about King, Huz, King Uzziah. He did the same thing. It says, when he, that is King Uzziah, had become powerful, he also became proud, which led to his downfall. He sinned against the Lord his God by entering the sanctuary of the Lord's temple and personally burning incense on the incense altar. Now, he was not a priest. He was not allowed to do that. It doesn't matter how much, how much God loved him. It doesn't matter that he was king. But you see, he got powerful and he became proud. And he thought, and many times when we get like that, we think we can do whatever we want. God's not going to care. So Deuteronomy 32, 15 says his prosperity caused him to be foolish and it destroys them. And this is talking about anybody. Israel soon became Figuratively, figuratively speaking, as it says in Deuteronomy 32, 15, Israel soon became fat and unruly. Again, when things are going well and men are doing well and they can't see any problems down the road, they're ready to say to God, as in Job 21, 14, go away. We want no part of you and your ways. Who is the almighty and why should we obey him? David said in Psalm 30, verses 6 through 7, Now in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. Lord, by your favor, you have made my mountain stand strong. David came to that place when he was doing well. He said, oh, I'll never be moved. Nothing can move me. Nothing can shake me. He says, because of your favor, my mountain stands strong. David's prosperity made him feel like nothing can hurt me. Nothing can happen to me, even though he knew that his riches and his powers had come from God. They had gone to his head and they made him proud. And that's when you become when you, you're in a dangerous position. Wealth, power and fame. They have a very powerful intoxicating effect on people. It makes them feel strong. It makes them feel independent. It makes them self-secure. You know, it makes them feel like I'm somebody. I did this. I, I, I'm, you know, I'm my own person. I, I don't need God. But this is a false sense of security, and it can be taken away easily, and it can be taken away instantly. Daniel, when he was trying to warn King Nebuchadnezzar about all the things God was going to do to him, if he didn't stop sinning, King Nebuchadnezzar didn't believe him. Daniel was trying to war warn him about the humiliation that God was going to bring upon him. Listen to Daniel chapter 4, verses 27 through 37. He said, King Nebuchadnezzar, please accept my advice. Stop sinning and do what is right. Break from your wicked past and be merciful to the poor. Perhaps then you will continue to prosper. But all these things did happen to King Nebuchadnezzar that, you know, that Daniel had warned him about. Twelve months later, after Daniel had warned King Nebuchadnezzar, twelve months later, it says that he was, walk, uh, he was taking a walk on the floor of the roof, a flat roof of the royal palace in Babylon. And as he looked across the city, he said, look at this great city of Babylon. By my own mighty power, I have built this beautiful city as my royal residence to display my majestic splendor. And while these words were still in his mouth, a voice came down from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, this message is for you. You are no longer ruler of this kingdom. And I said, remember, 12, this happened 12 months after Daniel had warned him. God had given him a whole year to think these things over, to repent and to become humble. It says, you will be driven from human society. 
Speaking of King Nebuchadnezzar, you will live in the fields with the wild animals. You will eat grass like a cow. Seven periods or seven years will pass while you live this way until you learn. Notice that the most high rules over the kingdoms of the world and gives them to anyone he chooses. That same that same hour, the judgment was fulfilled and Nebuchadnezzar was driven from human society. He ate grass like a cow. He was drenched with the dew of heaven. He lived this way until his hair was as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. After this time had passed, that is the seven years, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up at heaven. My sanity returned and I praised and worshiped the most high and the honored one who lives forever. His rule is everlasting and his kingdom is eternal. All the people of the earth are nothing compared to him. He does as he pleases among the angels of heaven and among the people of earth. No one can stop him or say to him, what do you mean by doing these things? When my sanity returned to me, so did my honor and glory and kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out and I was restored as head of my kingdom with even greater honor than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and glorify and honor the king of heaven. All of his acts are just and true and he is able to humble the proud. God will humble us one way or another. King Nebuchadnezzar didn't take the advice of Daniel and God had to deal with him. You know, we don't have to wait till God deals with us. You know, we need to, okay, take God at his word and, and, and humble ourselves. We see the same thing with King Herod in the book of Acts, chapter 12, verses 21 through 23. It reads, so on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them. And the people kept shouting the voice of a God and not a man. And because, you know, King Herod didn't say, oh, no, no, I'm just I'm just a man. You know, there, there's a God in heaven that is mightier and he's almighty. It says immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and died. You see, don't be fooled by the sense of false security that success gives us. Depend upon God for your security. So that when your world comes crashing down and, and your worldly possessions disappear, you won't be shaken up by it. We're never in greater danger than when we feel secure and prosperous. Secondly, a lot of, like I said, the, the Rehoboam's kingdom was out of order. Also, God quickly bought, brought troubles on him because of that. To wake them up and to bring them to repentance before their hearts were hardened. Jeremiah eighteen eleven says this. Therefore, Jeremiah, go and warn all Judah and Jerusalem. Say to them, this is what the Lord says. I am planning disaster for you instead of good. So turn from your evil ways, each of you, and do what is right. You see, you see God will not stand for, for you know, our pride and our arrogance and, and not giving him the glory. And in Jeremiah's day, the same thing happened. Jeremiah, you tell the people that I'm planning disaster for them so that they will turn away from their evil ways and do what's right. Nations are made up of people and they're able to receive God's word or reject it. God has given us free will and we have the ability to resist. Some people say we don't. And I believe the scriptures, Acts 7, 51. You stiff necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. God uses a lot of different people in our lives. He uses them for different ways to, to mold us and to shape our lives. He uses parents. He uses relatives, teachers, ministers, authors. And you know what? We can reject them. We can fight against them. But if we do, we're fighting against God. And you know what? There's no way that you can win. 
So as we look at our, our, our text here, it was only in the fourth year of Rehoboam's reign that they started corrupting themselves. And then in the fifth year, Shishak, the king of Egypt, came against them and attacked them with a huge army. And they took the fortified or the fenced cities of Judah that Rehoboam had made. And, and then he moved forward to attack, attack Jerusalem. And I'll bet you they did not expect this kind of thing to happen so soon after they stopped worshiping God. And they had little reason to expect it because they had a, they had a lot of friendly dealings with Egypt in the last reign. But God warned the people in Isaiah 31 through 3. He says, woe to the rebellious children, says the Lord, who take counsel, notice, but not of me and who devises plans, but not of my spirit that they may add to sin who walk and go down to Egypt and have not asked my advice to strengthen themselves in the strength of Pharaoh and to trust in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore, the strength of Pharaoh shall be your, your shame. And the attack against Rehoboam and, and, and Judah, it came with such violence that all the fortified cities of Judah that Rehoboam <clears throat> had just recently fortified back in chapter 11, he made a fort there as well, and he and depended upon so much, all of these things he depended on so much for the safety of his kingdom, they fell right away into the hands of Shishak, and, and without putting up much of a fight. So it was pretty obvious that, that this was from the Lord, because verse 2 says, notice, they had transgressed against him. The word transgressed means they had been faithful. Also, there was such chaos, just in case they didn't understand why this happened, God made it clear through his word. In verse 5, he says, because you have forsaken me, and therefore I also have left you. When all the leaders of Judah met at Jerusalem, probably for a war strategy meeting, and to put their heads together and come up with some sort of a plan for their own safety at this critical moment, God sends a prophet to them, Shemaiah. Remember, he's the one back in chapter 11. He's the same prophet that God sent to tell them, don't fight against your brethren. Shemaiah told them clearly why Shishak overcame them. It wasn't because they'd managed their affairs unwisely. It was because, verse 5 says, they had forsaken God. Remember, God never leaves anyone till they first leave him. And again, the rebukes of the word of God and the physical rod of God together, God's word and the physical rod disciplining them caused the king and the leaders to humble themselves before god because of their sin and they repented and they acknowledged their sin and they patiently accepted the punishment for the sin in verse six notice they said the lord is righteous in other words what the lord did to us was just it was the right thing to do we brought this all upon ourselves we can't blame god when he judges so it's right for us when God, you know, rebukes us to justify God and judge ourselves. You're, you're right, Lord, in what you did. We're wrong. Even kings and leaders have to bend or they'll be broken before God. You either humble yourself or be ruined. The choice is yours. Proverbs 21 says the king's heart, notice, is in the hand of the Lord like the rivers of water. He turns it wherever he wishes. Proverbs 16, 1 and verse 9, uh, Proverbs 16, verse 1 and verse 9 says the heart of the, I'm sorry, the heart of the king is in God's hand. Ecclesiastes 9, 1. So are the plans of all people. That's Proverbs 16, verse 1 and 9. 
Just like a farmer directs water by digging canals to the, to the crops, God bends the hearts of kings and princes to do whatever he wants them to do. In the same way, the Lord directed the hearts of kings. He did it to the Pharaoh, remember? He did it to Tiglath-Pileser. He did it to Cyrus. He did it to Artaxerxes. God is sovereign. And Psalm 115.3 says, He does whatever He pleases. Then after they confessed and repented, God showed them some deliverance. He gave them a partial deliverance, if you will. And He kept them from being totally destroyed. But He did leave some judgment on them to keep them from rebelling again. First of all, God was merciful to them. You see, he stopped them from being totally wiped out. Shishak came to completely wipe them out. Shishak had a large and victorious army, and he was now the ruler over all the fortified cities that, that Rehoboam had built. And before long, he would, Shishak would be expected to take the whole country, even Jerusalem. It would belong to the king of Egypt. But God said, this is where I draw the line. And he didn't let Shishak go any further with his plan of total destruction. Shishak's frightening and powerful army strangely becomes small and becomes powerless. So when he gets to Jerusalem, God does not allow him to destroy it. Verse 7 here in verse 12, we see, My wrath shall not be poured out on Jerusalem by the hand of Shishak, so as not to destroy him completely. Remember this. Those who admit that God is righteous and that he's fair when he afflicts them will find that he is gracious. Those who humble themselves before God will find favor with him. You know, God is so ready to give mercy. He is just waiting for the first opportunity to show us his mercy. And if we would humble our hearts before him, God will give them favor. God is so ready again to give mercy. We just need to humble our hearts under his humbling hand. Then the affliction will have done its job. It will either be removed or it will be uh, or it will be lightened. The nature of it will be changed. It won't be so difficult. The psalmist said in Psalm 119, 67, he said, before I was afflicted, I went astray. Oh, but now I keep your word. You see, the affliction did what it was sent to do. The psalmist was saying, you know, I used to wander off. Until you discipline me, God. But now I follow your word closely. You see, the psalmist had disobeyed God's word and he went astray. And his, his sin probably wasn't a deliberate you know, act of rebellion, but one of ignorance. And God in his love sent the affliction to discipline, to put him back on track. And as a result, it brought God's servant back to the place of obedience. Psalm 119.71, it is good for me that I have been afflicted. Now, when we're going through it, we don't see any good in it. He said that I may learn your statutes. The psalmist said, you know, my suffering was good for me. Why? It taught me to pay attention to your word. Psalm 119.75, the psalmist said, I know, O Lord, that your judgments are right. And many times we question his judgments, don't we? He says, and that in faithfulness, you have afflicted me. You see, God doesn't allow things in my life because he's mad at me or he doesn't love me or I've messed up, you know, for the most part. You know, sometimes it may be, but that's not necessarily the case. The psalmist said here, your judgments are right. And in faithfulness, because you love me and you want what's best for me, you afflicted me. You couldn't let me keep going in the direction that I was going. 
the psalmist was saying, I know, Lord, that your rulings are fair and you disciplined me because I needed it. And we all know if we've been around for a while, life is hard. And we have to accept both the pleasant and the unpleasant experiences from God. Listen to Ecclesiastes 7.14, Living Translation. It says, accept the way that God does things, because who can straighten what he has made crooked? Enjoy prosperity while you can, but when hard times come, realize that both come from God, and remember that nothing is certain in this life. The Living Bible paraphrases it like this. See the way God does things and fall into line. Don't fight the facts of nature. It is a sensible invitation to a life that is yielded to the will of God. If God makes something crooked, he's able to make it straight. And maybe he will. And maybe he'll ask us to work with him to get the job done. But if God wants it to stay crooked, we, we better not argue with him. Now, we don't fully understand why we'll do things that God does and, and all the works of God. But we do know that he, verse uh, Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, that he has made everything beautiful in his time. And this includes the way that we think are twisted and ugly. God is in it. He's behind it. In the dark times, God's word is a light and it shows us the way so that we don't go stumbling down the wrong paths. We have the love of God to comfort us. We have the promises of God to encourage us. We might not enjoy our circumstances, but you know what? We pray that God will use them for his glory and our good. And when the enemy attacks us, we need to turn to the word of God and find the help that we need and tell Satan, you're a liar. You're a liar. You're the father of lies. And my heavenly father cannot lie. Secondly, God allowed them to, 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 to experience some deliverance, but not a total deliverance. In other words, he gave the people some advantages against the enemy. He gave them deliverance for a little while. And they recovered for a little bit and for a little while, but they soon relapsed again. And as their reformation was, so was their, 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 their deliverance. Their reformation was just for a little while, and so was their deliverance. And yet, verse 12 says, things went well. And things begin to look better. When Israel's leaders, leader, leaders confess their sins and they humble themselves and they recognize that God was right in punishing them, God eased up on this judgment. It's never too late to repent, even in the midst of punishment. Doesn't matter what we've done. God is willing to take us back into fellowship with him. You know, if you're struggling and you're alone because sin has broken your fellowship with God, you need to humble yourself and you need to confess it to the Lord and he will open the door to receive his mercy. Things began to look get better for the people. First, in regards to godliness, verse 12 says there were still some good things in Judah. There were still good ministers and good people and good families that were made better because of the disaster in their country. And in regard to prosperity, things went, in Judah, things went bad when all of the fortified cities were taken, based on verse 4. But when they repented, their circumstances changed and things got better. If things don't go as well as we'd like them to, you know what? We still have a reason to be thankful 
if they go better than we expected, better than before and better than we deserve. We should thank God for his goodness, even for some deliverance. But he did allow them, like I said, to experience some suffering by the hand of Shishak. He did not allow Shishak to wipe them out, but he did allow them uh, Shishak some uh, to, to bring them some suffering, both in their freedom and in their wealth. First, in their freedom, according to verse eight. They were going to be Shishak's servants. This means they'll be at his mercy and they will be put under tribute by him. And some of them might even be taken prisoners and held captive by him. But why? So that they can experience the difference between, I love it, serving me and serving the kingdoms of the nation. God says, you think serving me is tough? Serve man. Maybe they were complaining. Like I've heard a lot of times throughout the years, Christians do. They were complaining maybe that, that, that you know, God is so strict. And maybe that's why the people forsook God. They abandoned God in his word. They felt he was too strict. They thought serving God was too hard, that God's yoke was too heavy upon them. God said, okay. You think you'll be better off by leaving me? Hey, I'll let you serve the heathen leaders for a little while since you don't want me to rule over you. And let's see how you like it. Listen to Deuteronomy 28, 47 through 48. God says, because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and gladness of heart. For the abundance of everything, therefore you shall serve your enemies, whom the Lord will send against you in hunger, in thirst, in nakedness, and in need of everything. And he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. Then they'll think twice about what they had done. They'll think about returning to their God, to their master. As Hosea 2.7 says, for then it was better for me than now. Sometimes we have to learn the hard way. Serving the heathen, heathen nations was a price that Judah had to pay for disobeying God. God's leaders thought that they could succeed in their own strength, doing things their way, but they were wrong. When we rebel against God, we always pay the price for it one way or another. When we, when we leave God out of our lives, we lose more spiritually, we lose more spiritually than we ever gain materially or physically so notice here the more you compare serving god with serving others the more reasonable and easy it will seem but no matter how how hard or whatever hardships we may think there are in obeying god it's a million times better to obey god than to expose ourselves to the punishment of, of disobeying him and if you think self-control is too hard the consequences of pleasing the flesh, man, it will be a lot harder, a lot costlier. The service of doing good is perfect freedom. The service of serving lust is perfect slavery. So they suffered in their freedom because now they were, again, uh, in tribute to King Shishak. They suffered in their wealth. Because King Shishak robbed the temple and the money, both the treasuries that Solomon left very full, but Shishak took them. He took everything that he could get his hands on, according to verse 9. This is what he came for. 
Solomon and David, who walked in the way of God, filled the treasuries of God by war and by other merchandise. But Rehoboam, who forsook the law of God, emptied them. John 10.10, Jesus said, The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. The enemy here took away the golden shields. And you know what Rehoboam did? He replaced them with bronze shields. That's pretty sad. The pure gold of Solomon's temple was replaced by cheap bronze. And that's what happens when you forsake God. You substitute the good things of God for cheap replicas. Substitutes. Rehoboam tried to keep up the appearances of former glory, but he couldn't. You see, when God is no longer the main thing in our lives, keeping up the appearance of a Christian life becomes shallow. Outer beauty has to come from inner strength. Rehoboam's story is a sad one. Verse 14 said, he did evil. Notice, why? Because he did not prepare his heart to seek the Lord. It's dangerous to put off responding to God. You see, God asks us for a solid commitment. And if we don't choose to trust in him completely with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our strength, we're going to find ourselves separated from him. Let's look at verses 13 through 16 now in closing. Thus King Rehoboam strengthened himself in in Jerusalem and reigned. Now Rehoboam was 41 years old when he became king, and he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city which the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. His mother's name was Naamah and Ammonitus, and he did evil because he did not prepare his heart to seek the Lord. The acts of Rehoboam, first and last, are they not written in the book of Shemaiah, the prophet, and Edu, the seer, concerning genealogies? And there were wars. Notice, there were wars between Rehoboam and Jeroboam all of their days. So Rehoboam rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. Then Abijah, his son, reigned in his place. The story of Rehoboam's uh, reign, it ends here. And two things stand out here. First of all, in the end... Rehoboam was pretty well established in his kingdom, according to verse 13. Secondly, he was never reestablished, though, in his relationship with the Lord, according to verse 14. Now, he never totally abandoned God. But it says he did evil because he did not prepare his heart to seek the Lord. This is why Rehoboam is at fault. He didn't serve the Lord because he didn't seek the Lord. He didn't pray like Solomon did for wisdom and grace. If we prayed better, we would be better all around. He didn't consult the word of God. He didn't seek it. He didn't seek God's word to be his guide. He didn't take directions from the word of God. James 1.25 says, But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty, which is the word of God, and continues in it, There's the key, continuing in the Word of God. It's not reading a little sermonette every other day or uh, one verse every other day. It's continuing in the Word of God. He says, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work. This one will be blessed in what he does. The blessing comes in doing, not just hearing. Rehoboam made nothing of his religion. 
because it says he didn't set his heart on it. He never paid close attention to his religion, which, you know, again, to, to the Lord, to the word. He never applied it to his life. He didn't have any sincere position in it. And he never came to a continual decision to be in it. What little goodness he did have, it was temporary. And it didn't last very long. He did evil because he never, he never was determined to choose what was good. He wasn't committed to doing what was good. People who are wavering and unstable in what's good, they're easily drawn away by Satan. They're easily drawn away by the little temptations that Satan dangles before them. They're never persuaded to make God the main thing in their life. Again, it's dangerous to put off responding to God, to making a commitment to God. God asks us for a solid commitment. You know, he says, you're for me or you're against me. There's no middle ground. And if we don't respond by trusting him completely with all of our heart, soul, and mind, we're going to find out ourselves that we'll be separated from him. And I'll close with Pastor Chuck's word to us at the pastor's conference all the time. He said, keep the main thing, the main thing. Jesus Christ. Keep him the main thing. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Father, we come before you to thank you for your wonderful word, God. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy, God. As we saw Judah deserved to be wiped out. But because of your love and your mercy, you spared them, Father. You relieved them of some of the judgment that was to come upon them. You spared them. And Father, you'll do that with anyone who's willing to humble themselves. You want to do that for them. But we need to humble ourselves and to seek your face and to call upon your name and confess, Lord, I need you. I'm lost without you. I'm nothing without you, God. Maybe you're here tonight and, and you've never made a commitment to Jesus Christ. Maybe you just like going to church and hearing a Bible study here and there, but you, you like, like Rehoboam, you didn't have a, a, a position. He didn't have a position in his God. He didn't take a, a, a committed position in his God. But we're asked to. Like Joshua said, choose you this day who you will serve. Choose. The worship team's going to lead us in a song of worship. And if God has spoken to your heart, the Holy Spirit is, has, has made it known to you that, you know what, I, I need to make a commitment to Christ. 
I need to make him my Lord, my Savior. I need to have a relationship with him. Then as we worship, you get up out of your seat, make your way down the aisles towards the step up, steps in front here. I'll meet you there. And when the song's over, we'll pray together a prayer of faith.